Thanks so much for listening to the weekly teaching podcast from Prodigal Church. We're so glad you're connecting with us online. If you've been listening for a while or you consider Prodigal as your home church, would you consider giving monthly to support this ministry? We're so grateful for the increasing impact our church is having on our online listeners. Thanks for being a part of us. You can discover all things Prodigal on the Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store or on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I can't contend with you Your ways are so much higher When we pass through the fire That Christ endured before us When you were in the wilderness Well, welcome to week one of our Into the Wilderness sermon series. Uh, We are picking up where we left off back from our sermon series in Exodus in 2018. Doesn't that feel like it was like 20 years ago? Um, So much has changed in our world and even in our church since that point. And as I've said before, if you'd like to go back and listen to that series um, in 2018, it's on all of our media platforms and it would be really helpful as we cover Exodus 1 through 14 in those chapters. And today we're going to pick up our story in Exodus chapter 15. Now, most of you know that I am a very big sports fan. I love sports and football is my favorite. And most people think that uh, really the NFL is the only thing that really has my heart because of my favorite team and because of my favorite player. But I also love college football. Um, I love the stadiums. I love watching the fans in the stadiums just go crazy. Uh, I love the history, the traditions, the rivalries. And I love that whenever the home team scores a touchdown, what does the band play? What do they do? Right? They play the fight song. Uh, The fight song is this epic song that, that connects them to the history of that university, right? A touchdown pass could be caught in 1965. And the same song that was played in 1965 is still played when a touchdown pass is caught in 2021. And that song evokes not just celebration in that moment, but joy from past victories, from old memories. And this is exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 15. The Hebrews, under Moses' leadership, cross the Red Sea on dry ground, and Pharaoh's army is crushed underneath the waters behind them. What happens next? Well, they sing a song. They sing a song of victory. Sometimes the song is called the song of Moses and Miriam, which was Moses' sister, but Moses was a song composer. Who knew? Right? And sadly, Moses, of course, is no longer with us composing music. Um, he died 3,500 years ago. So I guess you could say that now he's decomposing. Is, is that a bad joke? Let's get to our text. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. You stretch out your hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This song by the sea is the gateway of what will be the focus of attention throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. It is the bridge that closes the first half of the book of Exodus and enters into this new season of the wilderness, the desert wandering. And the song is recorded not merely to preserve some ancient artifact of the past, but to bring the past bearing in on their future. They are to remember God's faithfulness and his rescuing of them from Pharaoh in slavery. Songs help us remember the past, but they also move us toward the future in worship. I don't know if that's something that you really enjoy part of a church service, or if it's something that you just long for and you really love um, to engage with God in worship um, during uh, our church worship services. I'm not sure where you're at in that, but I wanna say this. The reason we worship, we do not sing only to reflect on our moods and our thoughts. Rather, we sing in an effort to take us away from what we feel and think and to bring us to a point of what we ought to think and feel, to draw us toward what we we should think, feel, and experience. We sing to create a mood rather than just to reflect on one. Just because we're not in the mood to worship isn't a good reason to worship, not to worship. The singing itself can change our hearts and draw us closer to God and and draw us to a place um, of closeness of longing. It can, the singing itself can loosen the heavy weights on our hearts. And the song of Miriam and Moses, the song by the sea, does just that for the people of God. As soon as they cross, as soon as they experience freedom for the first time on this desert patch of earth, they sing praises to God. But the celebration has to end and they must keep moving. Verse 22, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? This section is the first of the desert narratives. Israel has crossed the Red Sea and remains in the desert for the, for the rest of the Torah. They don't enter the promised land until Joshua chapter 3. So to use the analogy, if Israel's departure from Egypt is their birth as a nation, as the people of God, this season is their infancy. They're vulnerable. They're young. They're fickle. God is beginning to teach them, take them by the hand, teaching them patiently about how loving he is and what he has in store for his people. So these stories are not just murmuring about God's people, uh, but also God's care for them in the midst of their own complaining and their grumbling. But the fact remains is this, that they had just been set free from 400 years in slavery. They had seen 10 plagues. They had witnessed 100% of Pharaoh's mighty soldiers, one of the most powerful armies in the world, be drowned behind them by God. And yet, It only took them 
three days to forget all of that and to grumble against Moses. How would you have fared? I think part of what made it so hard for Israel um, that only after three days do they start kind of complaining was that there was no map. Okay, there was no, there was no chart to see their progress. They didn't know where they were. If, if there was a purpose in their pain, if they knew that the next stop, the next stop or the next step, there was going to be provision, uh, they can endure it, right? Pain needs a purpose. If you are in a hospital to deliver a baby, I'm told it's very painful, okay? I haven't done it myself, but I've seen it, okay? We sympathize much with uh, the mothers in our lives, but it seems to be very painful, okay? I think it's a safe assertion. But at least you know why you're there, right? You are there to give life, and giving life is painful. Uh, there's a purpose in your pain, and so you endure it, and it's worth it. But it's far a different kind of experience when you don't know why something is happening, when you don't know why you are experiencing this pain, or in this case, uh, this thirst. So they grumble. No sooner do the Israelites leave Egypt under the most miraculous circumstances that they would just in a few days of their departure lapse into their old pattern. They use their own perception of their own circumstances and they use that as the standard for reality and that's never the standard for reality. God is bigger than that. They still haven't learned that even though they're in a desert with no food or no water, God is above their circumstances and God is above our circumstances as well. Your circumstances aren't the, the only determining factor of your reality. God is. And he is above our circumstances. He is above your difficulties. He is above your shortcomings. God uses this instance of grumbling as an occasion not to, to punish his people, but to teach them something about himself. Look at verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So the people are thirsty, the water's undrinkable, so they grumble against Moses. God tells Moses to go see that piece of wood over there, grab it, throw it in the water, and then the water becomes drinkable. And this recalls the miraculous acts that Moses had done with another piece of wood, his staff, way back in Egypt. This time, it's not his staff used for the supernatural, but just some random piece of wood found in Marah. How long was that piece of wood sitting in Marah, just sitting there. Did God purpose this piece of wood years ago just for this very instant of providing water to his people in the desert? God moves and goes before us all the time. God is already ahead of us in time and in proximity. He is in front of us. He is beyond us. He is ahead of us, preparing the way, preparing his provision, just as he done with this piece of wood here in Marah. Uh, by itself, this piece of wood, it's, it's nothing much. You would walk past it and you would never notice it. But when purposed by God, it can be a great blessing. Every Christmas season, we at Prodigal, you, um, buy Christmas presents 
for uh, families in low-income areas. And we partner with the local elementary schools that some of these children go to, and we ask them which families could use an extra blessing this Christmas season. Uh, and then you all buy presents, hundreds of presents. You spend hundreds of dollars to buy gifts for kids that you have never met and you will probably never meet. And then we leave it to the schools to figure out how to distribute it in the most gracious, wonderful way for all the families. And it's a beautiful thing. Most of the time, we never know the impact that these presents uh, that have. We, we, we have no idea. It's not why we do it. But this past year, we had a Marah moment. In January this year, our children's pastor, Brittany Howard, got this letter from a principal of one of the schools that we gave presents to. And the letter read this way. I want to extend my personal thanks to you and the members of Prodigal Church for your continued partnership in sharing Christmas gifts with our Thomas Tigers. My staff, parents, and children and I were moved at your generosity and for supporting so many of our Tigers this year. I wanted to share a couple of anecdotes with you and your church to know how your sharing of gifts moved us all this Christmas. We placed all of the gifts in one of our special ed teacher's rooms, uh, with her permission, of course. She had been working from home the past few months and decided to come to work to change her scenery. She shared with me that she was really struggling this Christmas season as distance learning has been challenging for her students and for herself, and she has been grieving the loss of seeing her students in person. She forgot that she had agreed to have the presents sent to her room, and when she opened the door, she was overcome with joy at the generosity of your giving. She was moved to tears, and she told me that it suddenly felt like Christmas had come. After telling me this, we both went to her room and stood there crying. We also had four families that have suffered great loss this year and were overcome with emotion that someone had thought of their children this season. Almost every parent shared, we weren't going to be able to buy presents this year. You have made our Christmas. Words cannot express how my staff, parents, students, and I appreciated your giving and thinking of our community. Your gifts brought the light of Christ to our community this Christmas season. I know that this has not been an easy season for many of our churches, as well as they are meeting on Zoom and through live streaming. I wanted you to know that your gifts of love were so appreciated. Prodigal Church is just a little piece of wood in a desert town called Morah. But in the hands of God, we bring about God's justice and God's love to our community and to our world. And we quench the thirst of people in the desert. Have you too witnessed some Marah moments in your own life? If you think that God can't use you, you're wrong. He used a piece of wood in Marah, he'll use you. He's already using you. You just might not see the water turn to sweet, turn from bitter to sweet. This Marah story, it's not only a story of, the, of, of this of healing of this thirst, it's also a picture of a reversal of the plagues, right? A reversal of the plagues. In, for the plagues, Moses turned the Nile River, this, this life-giving source, this drinkable water, he turned it into blood and it became undrinkable. And here is the reversal of the plagues showing that God is still in control, where he takes undrinkable water and he makes it drinkable. 
And we're going to see this pattern throughout the wilderness journey. In fact, next week we read of quail covering the Hebrew camp. And it's the same Hebrew word used for a plague of locusts that covered Egypt. Verse 25, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And here's the lesson the Lord is trying to teach his infant children. When they're helpless and they're thirsty, Moses calls out to the Lord for help. And, and the Lord gives him instruction on how to make the water sweet. And when they followed the instruction, the water was sweet, no longer bitter. And in English, we miss something here. But in Hebrew, it's unmistakable. The word here for instruction is the Hebrew word for Torah, which means the law, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's always saying, when I give you my Torah and you apply it, the water will become sweet. There will be blessings. God's people are to listen carefully to the voice of God. His instructions will be sweet to them and it will quench their thirst. And much of what takes place in the back half of Exodus is God giving his people these very instructions, these life-giving instructions. Verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped there near the water. Not every stop in the desert is a bad stop. Isn't that beautiful? The 12 springs and the 70 palms would evoke images of the garden of God. And it would represent or be symbolic of um, completion in God's rule. This is one of those moments in life where you recharge your battery, right? Something happens and it just so happens to be the very thing that you need to keep you going, to keep you enduring, to keep you moving forward on your journey through the wilderness. Chapter 17, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam, came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wait, they're complaining again? Did they not just witness the destruction of the Egyptian army crossing the Red Sea? And did they not just witness Moses grabbing a random stick in the desert and making undrinkable water in Evian Aquafina Spring? A thousand blessings of deliverance get forgotten in the midst of a few hunger pains. Don't they know that it is infinitely better to be hungry in the desert with God than to be stuffed in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt? Notice they are rewriting history here. What do they say? They say, there we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. Like, this is revisionist history to a core, right? Like, like, like it was just a hometown buffet in Egypt, right? They just sat around eating food all day like it was great. Just pots of meat everywhere, walking around with their stomachs full. We do this too. We look back on seasons of our lives with rose-tinted glasses, right? And sometimes you can think back to your glory days in high school and how you could throw a football over that mountain over there. And that's great. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when highlighting the past comes to create a complaining future, 
We've gone too far. Something has gone awry. We've crossed the line. In fact, Israel begins to accuse Moses and to accuse God by saying, you've brought us out of this desert to starve us to death. You've brought us out of here to kill us. I have used this exact line to God, even recently. Being a pastor isn't always easy, and sometimes there are really difficult seasons. And it is during those seasons when I have accused God. Because Sarah and I know in the deepest parts of who we are that we were called to plant a church, and not just a church, but this kind of church, prodigal church. And when it's difficult, and when I feel like I'm in a wilderness, and I'm dying of thirst or starvation, I've said to God, did you bring me into this desert only to kill me? Is there no promised land? Is there no land flowing with milk and honey? Did you have to have me do this only to break me? Did you know that it's okay with God that we ask these questions? In fact, he doesn't strike the Israelites down after the second time they're complaining and grumbling. He actually supernaturally intervenes and he creates a new beautiful provision. The people complain, God, did you bring us out here to starve us? And only the most calloused hearts conceive of such a ridiculous charge. The only thing more surprising, perhaps, is the response that God gives, because rather than punishing them, he provides for them. He rains down something from heaven. If you ever question or need convincing that the grace of God is also in the Old Testament, you may only look here and you will find that it is so. God longs to be gracious to us. Look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that, for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. He provides them manna from heaven. And this, the Hebrew word for manna is the word what? Like it's, it's a question. Because when the Hebrews first saw it, they said, what's this? They, they literally called it the what food. Oh, you got the what food? That's what it's called. Elsewhere in scripture, manna is called uh, the food of angels in Psalm 78, or it's associated with God's good giving spirit uh, in Nehemiah 9. It's, it's called spiritual food in the New Testament. And Jewish folklore tells us the taste of manna. This is beautiful. I like this. Um, Jewish tradition says this, one only had to desire a certain dish and no sooner had he thought of it that manna had the flavor of the dish he desired. The same food had a different taste to everyone who partook of it, according to his age. To the children, it tasted like milk, the strong youths like bread, to the old men like honey, and to the sick like barley steeped in boiling honey. The Jews even claimed that to other nations, it tasted bitter. The supernatural provision. The text says that everyone got the exact amount they needed. Isn't that true of God? He always gives us the exact amount. He gives us enough. He gives us enough. It may not be all that we want, but it is enough. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that the people witnessed daily miracles. These were little daily miracles. God would provide it every morning. And now very important in receiving this manna was the stipulation that it is not to be hoarded. You're not to gather a bunch of it every morning, keep it in your tent so that you'll be fine throughout the next several days. No, 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 that doesn't work. 
And we see an incident of that in chapter 17. But God is rather to be trusted anew every day. So you get enough just for the day, and then you depend on God to provide for the next day. Except on the Sabbath, on the Friday, right before the Sabbath, you can gather twice the amount so that you don't have to go out on the Sabbath. Interesting that the law is given here about the Sabbath before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai in just a couple chapters ahead. The lesson here that we have to learn from this long trek in the desert and their life as a nation thereafterwards is this. Israel, the people of God, those who struggle with God, is what, that's what Israel means, those who wrestle with God, they are to be a people of perpetual dependence on him. God wants you to be a person of perpetual dependence on him. I'm convinced that this is why God doesn't answer our prayers for us to win the lottery because I've prayed it, you've prayed it, we've all prayed it, and we think that would be the right thing for us. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I want to provide your daily bread. I don't want you to, I don't want to provide this huge vat of food forever. I want you to have perpetual dependence on me. Because in so doing, you begin to see that God is reliable. God is trustworthy. God is worthy of our dependence. He is our parent. We are the infants and our father knows what we need. God knows what his people need and and he knows when they need it. And in the wilderness season, God is saying, you don't need milk and honey right now. You need manna. You need the what food. God has the freedom without your permission to take you to a bad place on the way to some wonderful place. I wanna say that again. God has the freedom without your permission to take you to a bad place on the way to someplace wonderful. And this is so true for the people of God. It's true for Joseph who gets thrown into a dungeon in Egypt uh, and he gets thrown into a cistern in the desert. Uh, It's true for Joseph and then he is raised to second in all of Egypt. It's true for David, who is, who is running for his life from Saul and then from his own son, Absalom, and he's hiding in caves and he's hiding in the wilderness. And God raised him up to be one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. It's true for the apostle Paul, who is riding on a donkey and is blinded by the light of Christ and goes to the Arabian desert for several years as he begins to work out who God has called him to be and to work out his understanding of the the, the new Christian faith that he has in Jesus. See, things can go very wrong and turn out very right if God is in charge. Hear that, church. Things can go very wrong, but turn out Very right if God is in charge, if God leads the way. So no matter what part of the journey you are on right now, God is calling you to depend on him because he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Just one more story and we'll close with this. The whole Israelite community, this is chapter 17, uh, set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord had commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there is no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. No way. They're doing it again. Three times in chapters 15, 16, and 17, they begin to grumble or complain against God and Moses after all that supernatural invention. This is is a joke, right? It's a joke. 
Uh, well, yes and no. It's a joke because it is meant to be exasperating for the reader to go, three times? They're complaining again? We're supposed to see the fickleness of God's people here, but it's not a joke because it actually happened. Three times after God supernaturally frees them from slavery in Egypt after 400 years, three times within the next month, they begin to complain, grumble, and accuse God and Moses. It is meant to perplex us. It is meant to convict us because haven't you had moments of beauty and wonder and you're convinced that you have moved past a certain struggle, you've moved past that way of thinking, you've moved past falling into the same patterns of sin. The last time really was the last time. And what happens next? Well, we fall into it again. How many times have we said the last time was the last time? God wants our perpetual dependence, but God is in the business of perpetual forgiveness. He forgives you, and you mess up, and you say you won't do it again, and then you do it again, and God says, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Follow me. And we're like, I'll follow you, God. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm not going to keep complaining. I'm not going to keep grumbling. I'm not going to get mad at you. I'm not going to complain. Two days later, God, where are you in this? Did you take me out here to kill me? I'm thirsty. And God provides supernaturally for us. God wants our perpetual dependence. And God offers his perpetual forgiveness. So sing a song of victory. Like the song by the sea in Exodus 15. And allow it to move us forward in our journey. Have eyes to see God's spirit at work through the little pieces of wood in our lives. You yourself become something that can make something sweet instead of bitter. Could your conversation be seasoned with salt? Could it be seasoned with sugar? Could, could your own uh, voice and comments bring uh, people closer to God, be uplifting instead of tearing them down? Can you live with a dependence on God that we might see that he is trustworthy? And know that when you fail to keep your promises, the promises that you've made to God and the promises you made to others, that God still loves you, God pursues you, God still calls you his own. And though we are a stubborn and rebellious people, the God of the universe calls you to endure this pain for a purpose. God calls you to endure it for a purpose. So would you have perpetual dependence on him as he has perpetual forgiveness for you in Jesus' name? God, we thank you so much for the ways in which you led the people of Israel and that you love them in the midst of their, all their complaints and how you also love us in the midst of our complaints. Forgive us for the ways in which we depend on everything else other than you. So God, help us to sing a song of victory, to remember the goodness that you have done, how you have freed us and rescued us from a, from a place much worse than slavery in Egypt, God, but from our own selfish actions and decisions. You freed us from sin into new, abundant, and eternal life, everlasting life with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, we continue our series, Into the Wilderness, as we dive in further to this journey of the people of God moving throughout the desert, and we may find ourselves as well wandering the wilderness. We hope you have a great week, and we pray in all sincerity for peace in the Middle East. Yeah.